All right, well, um, let's start back up then. So we are now on the handout that's called Lecture 2, What is Virtue? So this morning we were looking at the question of what is good and how we want things that appear good because we think that will make us happy. And we want happiness because a desire for happiness is inbuilt in us. We, we don't choose to desire happiness. We just want happiness, even before we know what happiness is. But we seek happiness in the wrong things often. We seek things that appear good but aren't really good. So what we need within us is all that to be stabilised so that we seek things that are truly good, real goods, and we seek them in proper measure and at the right time. And what we want is to not just want to do that right once, but to do it right habitually. And that's what virtue is all about. So what we're going to look at this afternoon is a summary of what I kind of teach a couple months of in my seminary course. Um, so it is going to be just a few points. But the question of what virtue is, um, what virtue looks like. But very generally, it's a stable disposition inclining you to the right thing by a habit, by repetition. And linked with this is a bit of what we were looking at here in this chart of needing to have a distinction between pleasure and joy, um, and also what's exterior and what's interior. That are not, not just concerned about the exterior, but actually the inner me that animates the exterior. So, um, the handout, page one there. The first little subheading there says, virtue is not a habit. Now that's a play on words, because in English we would say a virtue is a habit. But it's the title of a very famous um, article by Sylvain Pinker's, uh, written in French, but with that exact title. In French. Um, so it's not a habit. Well, what's it? What is it then? Well, a virtue, as I've said there, a virtue gives us a tendency towards a certain type of action. A virtue is just like a habit, but not a habit. The Latin term for virtue groups it as a habitus, and both virtues and vices are habituses. The, 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 the habitus is the kind of the general category. Like a disposition? Um, yeah. Or, well, when we define it, we'll say it is a disposition, among other things. A habit, I've said, that concerns a particular material act, for example, smoking. A virtue concerns not just a material act, but an inter interior act. Then I've given an example here, reading your breviary. This is a nice clerical example for us to focus on, yes? So if we ask the question, what am I doing saying my breviary? Now, I don't like saying the office. It's the part of my priestly life um, I get the least pleasure out of. Um, I don't like it, but I do it. I am required, I keep at it. Most of the time I'm saying my office, it is an act perseverance. So if I'm defining what the action is, it's an act of perseverance. Now, if I 
thought about it in a slightly different way. I might think of it and do it as an act of obedience. I'm doing it because the church commands it. By the law of the church, I am commanded to do it, I obey. What is the action? It is an act of obedience. Next description I put there is an act of religion in the sense of ecclesial worship. Now that's in a sense what it should be. That yes, it involves perseverance, yes, it involves obedience, but those shouldn't be what define the act. What the act should be, if I do it properly, is an act of religion. And the point is that each of these, each of those different descriptions, relates to a different virtue, it's doing a different thing, even though they each have the same exterior act. So at the exterior level, I might have said the words on the page in the exact same manner, at the exact same speed, but at my interior, I've engaged with it differently, and it therefore is a different action. And when we're talking about virtue, it's that connection of interior and exterior that we're concerned with. We don't just want to get the exterior right. And then the last example I've said there, when I say the bravery, what is the act? It could be an act of spiritual pride. So there am I in church, saying my office, and I am not like those lay people over there, muttering over whatever they're doing. I am a priest. And so the same exterior act has now become not a good act but of a different type, but it's actually become an evil action. Even though the exterior is perfectly executed, because what we care about is this combination of interior and exterior. So then we're relating to a vice, not a virtue. Even though in all of these it's the same exterior act. Could that be applied in private as well? Yes. yes. Because I think that's advice that I may have slipped into. Uh, even though it's just between me and God, I'm reading the office and deriving nothing from it. But I, I think to myself, while well, I'm reading the office. So that applies in private as well as in public. Yeah. And just to throw into the mix there slightly, um, you know, we talk in the spiritual life about purification, rectification of intention, that actually there's probably a bit of each of these in me. Um, and what I'm doing when I'm <coughs> purifying my intention is I'm seeking to make it right. But I can have a habit of obedience forming in me and a habit of perseverance forming in me. Um, but when I get my intention right, then it should be a persevering, obedient act of religion. But the, the, the act of religion is the defining thing that includes, in this expression, obedience and perseverance, and probably other things too. Back to my notes here. The will, so the will and the intellect are the two things St. Thomas would refer to. The will is grasping different objects, objects being the technical description of the act in each of those above examples. Each different object relates to a different virtue, a different way of it being perfected. And this is the key point. 
repetition of the act, the interior act, not the material act, fosters the virtue. So in big print there, repetition of the same interior act engenders the corresponding virtue. I've noted interior and exterior acts. These aren't two different acts, but two aspects of a single action. The interior act might be very brief. Virtue should make it come easy and immediate. Whereas the exterior act needs to be unfolded in time. Right, over the page. Um, well, does anyone have any other comments before we... Okay, so page two is looking at the passions. Um, as I said here, the Catholic tradition has referred to human passions in two very opposing ways, um, but both are true in different senses. Firstly, um, there's a classical way of referring to the passions as seeing them as wicked things. That the flesh, and especially the passions, incline us to sin. And why do they do this? They do this because of the fall. So concubiscence is the term used to describe the disorder within our passions. And as a result of concubiscence, every human has an inherent inclination to sin. And the human passions are fallen, as I've said here, in two senses. First, they tend us towards apparent goods, not real goods. Or, they tend us to real goods, but in a manner that is too strong or too weak. I.e., even when we tend towards the right thing, we tend to it in the wrong manner. So this is applying to the passions, in a sense, what we just described earlier this, this morning, about how we sin. That our passions incline us to the wrong thing, apparent goods, not real goods, or the right thing, but too much or too little. That they're not properly ordered, and in that sense, they're wicked. What makes it the wrong manner? Um, well, the ten donuts instead of one donut. That it, a measured passion would Yes, I have dessert, but I have a measured, proper amount that's actually still healthy for me. But actually, I want a lot more than that, the love of my passions. So I need to introduce something else into here if my passions aren't going to be with it. But even then, the passions are moving me to something that appears good, which is actually the second point. So, according to St. Thomas Aquinas um, and the virtue ethic perspective, when we talk about the passions, we, generally speaking, are meaning them as good things. So here, the Catechism and St. Thomas both refer to passions as good and as that which orients us to the good. But the passions can be perverted into the vices. More technically, passions are movements of what's called the sensitive appetite, <coughs> and arise when the intellect contemplates something perceived as either good or evil. Explain that about the sensitive appetite. Right. Um, so, sensitive appetite, that there are within me different appetites. There's a rational appetite, um, which is what the will is. But there's also, in a sense, the bodily component.
element, the sensitive appetite, in which I have movement, an appetite, a desire that relates to me at a sensitive level, the level of the senses. And that's what the passions are. So that the angels don't have passions because they don't have bodies, they don't have senses. Humans have passions because we have bodies. But our body, in orthodox thought, isn't an evil thing. Um, but because I am fallen, it can be... It, it, I relate to it, I experience it in this fallen world, but in itself it's a good thing, and my passions in themselves are a good thing. And my passions only ever respond to something because it looks good or looks evil. So I see something horrific out there, and at the level of my passions, I experience fear and run away. And that's appropriate. If you see something bad, you should recoil from it. I see something that appears good and desirable at the intellectual level, and that awakens within me the passion for it. So this is what we mean by the passions. This component that I have because I'm bodily. It isn't just bodily, so St. Thomas refers to the passions of the soul. They have a root in the body, but they are something I experience because I am a, a body-soul unity at a spiritual level. It's interesting, isn't it, that so much, I mean, the assumption is often Main that when you read the word passions or passion, you really put a negative overtone right in our culture, you know. But, but then when you unpack it, you know, to be you know, passionate debate or passionate, you know, or, or compassion, you know, yes. you, you, can, you can see it. But you know, for first, when you first visit the word, passion is seen on the flesh. Well, and, and I, I was wanting to make the point that there is within our Catholic tradition a strong usage of the word that uses it to refer to something new. Mm. Um, so I'm a great devotee of St. Alphonsus Liguri. Um, the only Stations of the Cross I would ever say, but it's just my choice, would be his. Um, but when he, I think it's the 13th Station, refers to the passions, he says, my wicked passions, because they're bad things. Um, now he's writing as a uh, 18th century legalistic, manualist moral theologian. Um, but, the, but it is orthodox in Catholic usage. But the, if I'm talking about passions in a virtue context, we just need to be clear that there are different ways of using the word passions. So from this moment on in these pages, I'm referring to the passions as good things, things that move us to the good, even if they might move us to something that appears good but isn't really good which means the passions need forming and directing. But nonetheless, what do passions do? They move us to things that look good or recoil us from things that look evil. Now I now want to spend a moment thinking about the interplay between my bodily passions and my intellect and my will. So my will can kind of command something, 
My intellect thinks and grasps something, and my passions at the bodily level push me to something. So those three things, the intellect, the will, and the passions. So the passions, this bodily component that I don't choose, I just get a movement to. The will that I decide, regardless of what I feel, I decide something. And my intellect, what I think. So page three of these notes. So reading through the top of the page here. The good is known by both reason and by our passions. So by reason, the intellect judges something as good for me, as perfected for me. But this is an, an act of thinking, an act of judgment. But my passions also know, not at an intellectual level, but at a real level, things that are good. So as the Catechism puts it, by his emotions, man intuits the good and suspects evil. Passion is a movement of the sensitive intellect that inclines us to act concerning a perceived good or evil. So do you get this distinction? The, the grasping of something as good at an intellectual level, or grasping it as good at a kind of instinctive passion level. These are two different ways in which you know the same thing. So, there's a, a donut there on the table, and I might intellectually consider the donut, the amount of sugar in it, the blend of chocolate coating, the, the filling, um, and, and I'm thinking about it and grasping whether it is good or bad, and that's one way of knowing it as a thinking rational level. But there's another way of knowing it in my passions. I just see the donut and I think, whoa, that even before my intellect has done more than just a cursory glance at it, my passions have been awakened. Two different ways in which I know the same thing. Okay, so how do the passions get evoked? What causes the passions? That's the next little section here. The passions can be evoked or ignored by the will and intellect. So that the point here is that we're not just passive before our passions or emotions. And we can think about this in the short or long term. So A, in the short term. One, reasoning can focus on a particular aspect of how and what's called an intentional object is perceived. And this evokes a different passion. For example, this is a medieval example, but focusing on a wolf's teeth evokes the passion of fear, whereas focusing on the wolf's vulnerability to a sword evokes the passion of daring. So how I am choosing to think about a thing will awaken a different passion in me. Point two, the intellect therefore governs the passions, what's awakened, what isn't awakened, in what St. Thomas calls a political manner rather than a tyrannical manner. That a tyrant commands, whereas a politician 
governs, maneuvers free subjects. So my mind, my intellect, can direct my passions, but not just by commanding, think brave things. No, but by contemplating those things that awaken bravery within me. So that my intellect can change the passions that are awakened. Or subdue unhealthy passions that have been awakened. Point three about the will. The will can direct the reasoning of the intellect to focus its thinking, as described. And the will can choose not to consent to the passions. And the will can then command an action contrary to the inclination of a passion. So I see the donut, I yearn for the donut, and the passion within me is strong for the donut, but I do not consent. So that my wills are not required to follow my passions. B, in the long term, so that everything I was describing there is, is very short term. In the long term, repetition, and this is a thing of virtue, repetition, repetition, repetition. Repetition of good interior acts fosters virtues, and this causes our passions to get the habitus of recognising certain goods. So let's again imagine a pile of donuts on the table. If I always have 10 donuts for breakfast, my body will be habituated to see 10 donuts and just think, that's a reasonable amount to eat. Whereas if I only ever, ever have one donut at a time, then if I see a pile of 10, it will barely occur to me to have more than one. I will have habituated my passions so that the passion moves me to one, because that's what the passion has been habituated. Repetition, repetition, repetition to seek. And when I have that repetition, when I have that habit habituation, then what my intellect judges is the same conclusion as what the passions move me towards and what my will will then command so that I have an integration of all these and they all are pulling me to the same goal because of repetition. And so what repetition means is if you get it right the first time and then the second time and the third time, it becomes easy in the long term. So as I said there at the bottom of that, um, Section, the virtuous person is directed to the good by both his passions and his will and intellect. That virtue consists in the possession of this integration. Both catechism, emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. So these three different ways that we know something. The intellect, the will, that we grasp something, or the passion. Let's make
make this a bit more specific then with actually defining virtue. So this is page four now. <coughs> and this definition of virtue is from the Catechism, which defines virtue as there. A virtue is a, an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It allows the person not only to perform good acts in the individual, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends towards the good with all his centre in spiritual powers, so that integration. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete acts. The goal of a virtuous life is to become like God then plucked out a couple of phrases from that an habitual and firm disposition so Pinker's uh, phrases it as a quasi-natural inclination that you kind of form your nature change your nature so that what you would do at the level of instinct it's almost like an instinct when you've got the virtue the other thing is tends towards the good in concrete acts Noted, specific material acts may vary, but the same good is pursued in each act of the virtue. And the virtues are defined by their object, which means they're defined by their interior nature, for the example, justice, not exterior, money. So what do I mean by that? Um, when you have a virtue, it relates to your interior. It's not just the exterior. And that interior would affect you on many different exterior actions. So if you have the virtue of perseverance, well, perseverance comes into play in lots of different things, not just in one thing. But you might form perseverance in one particular sphere of your life, um, saying the breviary. Um, <laughs> Perseverance in how you drive and visit your parishioners. Um, that you can do that in a persevering way, that you just keep plugging at it. And what you are building into your character is the virtue of perseverance. Then you come to some completely new part of your life that never existed in a previous setting in your life, but that also needs perseverance a whole new exterior that you've not done before those exterior actions. But this interior perseverance is already in you. And it just instantly and easily applies itself in this different exterior context. So that virtue is about this interior that's ready and can be applied in multiple different exterior situations. I hated theological college, couldn't stand it. For three years I persevered with it, mm -hmm. which meant that, but when I joined the, when I joined the, the Navy and I'd do my commando course, mm -hmm. that was jolly uncomfortable and painful and I was working cold and thrashed within an inch of my life. But I thought if I can burn the three years theological college on campus, <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Right. And being away from home as well. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a separation. Yes, no, I get that. Yeah. 
So the, the previous, the first example I started with was the breviary and how that same exterior action could form very different interior virtues depending on how I've related to it. But it also works in reverse, that the one interior can have many different exterior occasions. Mm. So it doesn't have to be donuts, it could be gin and beer and all sorts. Yes, except because different pleasures come into play in different things, the type of moderation that I will have to grow in for those different things will vary. So that the self-control for Christmas cake and mm -hmm. for donuts will be quite similar, because what they awaken in me at a physical level will be similar. Alcohol has a different package of pleasures, so learning to moderate and control and discipline those is going to be different. Mm -hmm. But the, your, the virtue of moderation in alcohol is pretty similar for whiskey and beer and wine. Mm -hmm. Because the pleasure, and as much as it's alcohol, is the same. Um, and once you've got the virtue right for one of them, for whiskey, it's pretty easy to bring it into play in wine, even though you might be having it in a different context. Can I ask a question about um, your example this morning about how um, saying the opposite, whatever it was, might, might breed in you a, a, a vice of pride? Oh, look at me, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, as opposed to those so if that were the case, what, to what extent would it be right to desist from that exterior act in order to prevent the interior vice? Presuming that's the solution. Presuming that's the solution. Because you, you could still persist in the act. Because I'm by thinking by back correcting my, your intention. I'm thinking back intention. to my own evangelical Anglican past. But, you know, a lot of the evangelicals I was raised with would look at Anglo-Catholics, and they say, look at them poncing around in their funny vestments. Um, the solution to that vice is not to wear vestments. Mm -hmm. So they would wear very simple vestments, or just have a collar, but eventually not even that, because uh, that would be all, all where uh, avoiding the pride of preening in, in vestments. But I think that's a confusion of exterior, mm -hmm. solution of the exterior with the interior, because you could just as much pride yourself on how casual you look. Yes. But, you, but your motive, the, 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 the criticism of the person promising, as they perceive someone promising around investments, that's assuming that the person is promising. They're not. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, it might be an incorrect judgment to begin with. But assuming it's a correct judgment, what's the solution? Stop being promising. <laughs> <laughs> well, on one level, that's a matter of spiritual direction. So the, the, you can, in order to get it right in an individual person who's striving to get is pursuit of the good correct. Yeah. Sometimes just focusing on the interior, the intention, works. Yeah. And maybe the solution is actually to get the intention right in other spheres of their life. Yeah. Um, so thinking of, um, so we've got the, the material act of wearing elegant vestments for the mass, 
I want to do that properly rather than in pride and vanity. So in some other sphere of my life, where there's a different exterior, but I want to get the interior right also to carry over, I get my pride and vanity appearance correct in that. So for a certain type of priest who would wear lay clothes on his day off, um, to not be overly preening on the fashion and cut of his lay clothes mm. would help carry over to when he's then wearing his vestment because mm. he should not be preening too much. Yes, yes. The other way of tapping it would be to detach yourself from the exterior vestments actually by making the vestment somehow less nice. Mm. So by um, the danger then is you end up not doing glory to God. Mm. Um, but I think there would be some people that that would be one of the ways to do that. Mm. Something that my spiritual director tells me, no, that, that is good enough for God. Mm. It's not as nice as you'd like. Mm. Um, so both the exterior and the interior you can tackle mm. in order that you get it right eventually by habituation. Mm. Back to the definition of virtue then. So, an inclination, a firm disposition to the good in concrete actions, so not in random actions, but you have a different virtue that relates to different spheres of acts, different objects. I said virtue enables a semi-automatic recognition of good deeds as opposed to evil deeds. I less reflection is needed to realise what is right and what is wrong. And to quote St Thomas, there are two ways of judging. A man may judge in one way by inclination, as whoever has the habit of a virtue judges rightly of what concerns that virtue by his very inclination towards it. Hence, it, hence it is the virtuous man, we read in Aristotle, who is the measure and rule of his acts. But another way of judging is by knowledge. Just as a man learned in moral science might be able to judge rightly about virtuous acts, though he had not the virtue. So an example to give for this is cooking. So I um, am pretty bad at cooking, but I can follow a recipe. I can, at the level of the intellectual judging, I can judge from the outside how to make a good dish. I can follow the instructions. But I have none of the instinctive inclination type way of cooking whereby just by throwing the right things in I, I kind of know the consistency of how a gravy should look if I've not measured it out I can't do it but the person who has that inclination to the cooking doesn't need the recipe they do that same thing in a semi-instinctive manner so two ways in which you can judge correctly but by different means and when you have virtue those two judgments happen united and happen easily so the person who can cook without the recipe cooks easier cooks more quickly um, it's, it's just a part of him 
And that's what virtue gives us when we have the virtue of whatever that particular field of activity is. And you as the person who reads the recipe, you could become more virtuous by practicing cooking. Yes, but I think I'd then need to be, uh, that would be one way, um, but I'd need to be cooking in a way that's looking at the product, not looking at the recipe. Mm -hmm. Whereas if all I'm doing is learning how to follow a recipe, all I ever gain is the virtue of reading a recipe. Yeah, but you're not really trying to get pleasure by creating a decent dish, are you? Um, no, no one prepares a meal and says, well, I'd like it to be good enough, you know, or it's a bit crap, I don't mind. <laughs> you do your very best to produce a decent meal for someone, you? You must be yourself. I, 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 I suppose, I suppose the, the difference I'm trying to point is something so different. That when you put things together in a saucepan, you can be focused on what happens in the saucepan mm. and learn that way. Or you can just read the instructions, and all I ever learn how to do is read instructions. Yeah, but what I'm saying is it's not a static thing. It's, it's practice of virtue that leads somewhere so that you don't stay being that person who you develop. I think that would be a different virtue. So that would be the virtue of caring about the people I'm preparing the food for. Which is also a virtue to acquire. Mm. But what I'm trying to describe would hold even if the only one I'm feeding with the food is myself. Is there a definitive list of virtues? No. And part of the reason there's no definitive list is every single field of human activity can be perfected in its own virtue, mm. in its own object. And, when we, and that's part of the difference between studying the virtues in the plural and just virtue in the singular. Those are yes, those are four of them. But they're but they're the they're the main and then that doesn't exclude there being others, those are just the ones we draw attention to. And the other virtues would be parts of those. Um, now Aristotle would say any single virtue possessed completely totally, completely, would bring in its chain all the other virtues and perfection as well. Um, but in practice, some virtues are much more foundational than others, and that those are the ones we want, in a sense, to focus on getting right. Whereas there would be an art in standing correctly, a virtue of standing correctly, in a way that is not so overly focused on preening myself, but does nonetheless have the dignity of proper stature, includes perseverance in holding myself there, but not holding myself too much. And so that, that even the most mundane act can be perfected in a way that draws in everything else. Um, but actually the most obvious way to perfect things is through the acts that somehow are in themselves more significant in general human behaviour. If you look just repeat what the Aristotle, Aristotle um, was it about the doing one act, having one virtue completely would bring all the other virtues completely with it. So, so you know, the word is completely. Yes, yeah. complete, exactly, exactly. 
so that you can't be perfectly chaste and have no courage. That actually fortitude, courage, is part of, interacts with chastity. And you could take that across all the virtues. But that some of them relate more directly to each other than others do. Yeah, it's changed the meaning, isn't it? Because we, we, we talk to a lot of people about chastity, and they think, oh, I just mean saying no. It's much more than that. 